0: Uh, many groups, some would claim to be Christians, some would not claim to be Christians, would often take part of the Bible and make what they, their favorite part of the Bible um, central. And so I'll explain that in my own life, how this has worked. Um, For me, I I grew up in a really uh, rigid uh, church growing up back home. And one of the things that I kind of learned from that was um, we we had this idea of you don't want to backslide and you're always living so that you don't backslide. And so that was central in the Bible. So every story, every sermon was about How good somebody was, and how you're not good, and you need to stop. You need to be more like David, or you need to be more like Job, and you need to have patience. And so I was always trying to. It ended up being real fundamental, and I was trying to. uh, It ended up being real prideful and arrogant, and how I kind of fleshed that out. And so it's because we made that central in um, the Bible, and some 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 groups may take the Ten Commandments and they may make that central in the Bible. And so what you end up having is uh, a works based salvation, if that's the case. Some would put baptism as the center, and so they would equate baptism uh, equal to salvation, and so they would tell you that you need to be saved, you need to be baptized in order that you could be saved, and so instead of making it a symbol um, of salvation, and so others might put Pentecost as the center of their theology and the center of the Bible, and so what that ends up being is uh, you end up looking for Pentecost to happen over and over again, and you might actually tie in tongues with salvation. So you're not saved unless you speak in tongues. And so that's the danger of Pentecost in the center of the Bible. Some might put the kingdom as the center of the Bible. And so you end up with social justice and doing just good things just to do good things. And you're trying to bring heaven to earth. Some would say that The second coming is in the center of the Bible, and where that ends up is many charts and graphs and left-behind books and, you know, freaking people out and looking for signs and wonders for the end times. Others might put prosperity as the center, where health and wealth is the end-all, be-all, and supreme of your life. Others will put uh, poverty as the center, where if you deny yourself, you're closer to God. Some even put the Bible as the center where knowledge puffs up and you're not missional and you're not living a life on mission. You're just becoming more and more arrogant in what you know. And so what I see here this morning and what we find in Scripture is the center of all of Scripture. Paul says it really well in First Corinthians three, or fifteen three through four, it says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, accordance to the Scriptures. And what Paul does is he says, look, the most important thing is Christ's death, Christ's burial, and his resurrection. And we would say that we are falling into what we believe is to be central in all of Scripture. Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection. His resurrection proves what the cross did was sufficient. And so I want to talk about why the cross is the crux of everything that we do here at Integrity and everything that we preach here at Integrity. And I'll just be honest, I don't have tons of jokes this morning. Um, there's not a lot of appropriate ch- cross jokes in Luke 23. Um, it's going to be real straight with you and just give you what God's word says and try not to get in the way of that. All right. So what we've seen in Luke... 23, that Jesus has been betrayed. He's been put on trial and he's been uh, saw and seen innocent through his trial. Herod and Pilate uh, give in to an angry mob of people who are yelling in unison, crucify him, crucify him. The scriptures actually tell us in Luke 23 that their voices prevailed and they wanted Christ to be crucified. So Christ was sentenced to be nailed on a cross. And we find ourselves this morning where Luke gives the details of this brutal death. Look at verse 26 in Luke 23. It says, As they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and was laid on him a cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wounds that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they began to say to the the mountains, fall on us in the hills, cover us. For if they do not see these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? You wonder, Simon here, who's carrying Jesus' cross, as Jesus has been beaten, he's barely making it on his walk, and you have Simon who's carrying this cross for him, and you wonder why in the world wouldn't Jesus be able to carry this himself if another grown man can carry it? Certainly, Jesus was not a frail man. Uh, I know the pictures of Jesus often, he looks like a very frail hippie, um, but he's not. Um, we see a different picture in scripture. He's actually a carpenter. He could swing a hammer. His hair was, his, his hair was short. It wasn't long. And uh, his hands were probably callous and strong. And so, he would have been able to carry his own cross. But the reason why he was not, we know this from other gospels, and we even see this in Luke um, 23, that Jesus was beaten. Um, They put a robe on him to mock him as the king of the Jews. And we even see this in Luke, that they even put a sign over the cross that said, king of the Jews, mocking him. And they put a crown of thorns on his head. Now, in eastern North Carolina, when we run into a thorn bush, the thorn pieces are maybe that long. But I've been to Africa before on a missions trip, and uh, if you've ever seen a thorn bush, uh, the the thorns are this long, and maybe even longer. And if you ever drive over it with a car, it will um, deflate your tires. And I remember even playing soccer and accidentally uh, kicking a ball into a thorn bush with while I was in Africa, and I watched this soccer ball just deflate in seconds. I even met a woman who, when she was a young girl, walked into a thorn bush by mistake, and it knocked her eye out completely, and she was only with one eye. And that's how sharp and painful these were, and they placed it on Jesus's head, and they pushed it into his skull. And this is Jesus before the cross as they mocked him and flogged him. And Ridiculed him. And Jesus has been beaten severely to this point where he can't even carry his own cross. So Simon carries it for him. And as he's struggling to walk to the cross, uh, these women cry out. They begin to see him and, and weep at the sight of Jesus. And Jesus turns to them and he tells them, and this is very interesting what happens is Jesus tells them not to weep because what they're about to see is even more sad than what they see in front of them. Uh, He's actually claiming the destruction of the temple. He tells them that you're going to see mothers who are nursing mothers be killed at the sword. You're going to see pregnant women killed at the sword. And what this actually was is Jesus showing, now listen to this, Jesus is showing his divine characteristics in this moment. I mean, just think about the pain that Christ went through. Uh, he's being uh, about to be nailed to a cross. He has a crown of thorns pushed into his skull. He's been beaten horrendously, and now he turns and he's able to prophesy over what is about to happen. That a few years later, actually seventy A.D. In fact, history will show us that the temple was in fact destroyed. Millions and millions of Jews were killed by the Romans. And they even call it, historians will even call it the first Jewish Holocaust ever. And I look at the story, I'm just like, Jesus is showing his human side by taking the pain and taking the beatings and being ridiculed in every single way so much that his body can't even carry the weight of a cross on his back. And now we see a divine part of him that he's able to look in the faces of these women, and tell them the destiny of Israel, that they would be destroyed in 70 AD. And I'm just blown away by that because what does that tell you? It tells you that Jesus laid aside his divine rights to fight and go through the pain and the agony of the cross. And so let's see what happens next. Luke 23 verse 32 says this. Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, Now, um, all of these are record- the, the crucifixion of Christ is recorded in all the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Each writer writes about a different element of the crucifixion, so we don't get uh, the full picture unless you read all the different gospels. And he, they do that because they're writing to different audiences. So John is writing to Jews and Greeks. Um, Matthew is writing to Jews, and you have Mark who's writing to Gentiles, and you have Luke who's writing to Greeks. And he's writing to a specific audience. He's writing to this guy named Theophilus, who was a skeptic. We know this from chapter 1, uh, uh, verse 1 and 2. You see, Paul, uh, Luke writes this letter to um, Theophilus so that he would see a good and excellent work of Christ. So what he does is he goes and gets eyewitness accounts of all these things that are taking place. And so he would have gotten all this information from eyewitnesses who saw Jesus. And Luke saw Jesus crucified. And so it's very interesting to me what he highlights. He highlights these events that are surrounding the crucifixion. He talks about how he was crucified between two criminal, criminals. And he does this because you've got to remember, this is a prophecy that was proclaimed hundreds and hundreds of years before this actual event took place. Isaiah 53, 12, we'll have that on the screen. It says, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intersex, intercession for the transgressors. So here in Isaiah 53, you see Jesus is going to be crucified among criminals. And you even see Jesus in Luke 22. Jesus says, I must be crucified and I will be crucified among criminals. And so Luke points out the fact that Jesus was crucified among criminals. And so if you're a skeptic like this guy, Theophilus, who he's writing to, you're blown away at this fact that all of these events have been prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before. And so look at how Jesus interacts with these men. Look in verse 39, Luke 23. It says this, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done, listen to this, this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when your kingdom When you come into your kingdom, and he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And I could do a whole sermon on verse 39 through 43, um, but I'm not just because of time. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard sermons on just these few verses about these two criminals that Jesus was crucified in the middle. But it's important that I want you to point out that you have belief and unbelief right here in front of us. You have one criminal who just wants to be pulled out of the situation, just be rescued from the pain that he deserves to go through. You have the other criminal who acknowledges that he has been condemned. He also acknowledges that Jesus Christ is God, and he also cries out not that Jesus would save him from the torture that he was going through, but the fact that Jesus would save his eternal soul. And so there's a different response here with these two criminals as Jesus Christ is being crucified. And so that's an encouragement for me, if you see this, because Jesus tells him, today you will be with me in paradise, which means this. Man, next week we're going to do a baptism service. And what we tell people over and over again is this, baptism does not save you. It's a symbol of salvation. And here what Jesus shows us is a simple thing. Baptism doesn't save you. It's Jesus who saves you. Do you see this man being taken down from the cross and being baptized? No. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It tells you this. Church does not save you. Jesus saves you. It tells you this, money does not save you. Jesus saves you. Marriage does not save you. Jesus saves you. Your good works, your effort, your moral convictions, and all these little things that we try to do to modify and to get ourselves into heaven, it will not save you. Christ is the only one who saves. That's what this, that's what this whole thing is showing us here this little glimpse, this little picture, we're seeing that Jesus Christ is the one who saves. He claims, this man claims that he's God, claims that he is innocent. He claims that he himself is guilty. And he cries out that God would save his eternal soul. And we see this beautiful picture of salvation here. And I'm utterly amazed at Jesus' compassion toward this criminal and also toward those who are flogging him and mocking him and they take his robe and they cast um, lots to see who gets this purple robe that was put on him. And Jesus offers up a prayer to the Father that he would forgive those who had laid their hands on him. And he says they're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. And if you notice Luke's writing, even the writing of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one thing you'll see is they are highlighting events around the crucifixion around the cross. But when it actually comes down to describing Jesus' death, what do you see? Look at Luke, verse 33. Luke simply records this. There they crucified him. That is it. And you wonder, and you see all the movies, and you, and you read all the stories about Jesus' crucifixion. If you've seen Passion of the Christ or Gospel of John, you see these horrendous things that happen to Jesus. And then you see the writers, the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it gets down to the details, and it's just like they crucify him. We hear about beatings before. We hear about how his body is wrapped and laid in a tomb. We hear later that he resurrects, proving that his cross is sufficient that his death is sufficient, conquering Satan, sin, and death. But when it comes down to the actual event, all the writers seemingly say is something very similar: they crucify him. Why would they do that? Well, Let me just pose this question: Think about the person that you love dearly the most. If, it's your, if, it's, if you're married, it should be your spouse. If you have kids, your kids maybe. If you have a friend or a a loved one or a mom or a dad, and they, let's just think they were murdered. And someone to ask you to retell those events, you wouldn't go into gory detail, even if you saw the whole thing. You would just say they were murdered. And if you look at this, these writers, they were friends of Jesus. They're not gonna go into detail about, here's every little thing that happened. No, they could barely utter the words, but they did say that they crucified him. And so what I want to show you this morning is I want to expound on what his death actually was, because I do want you to know, this man in no way deserved death on a Roman cross. Jesus died the most painful, bloody, and horrifying death Um non-Christian writer, uh, historian, his name is Josephus. He's a Jewish historian. He wrote about the crucifixion. He said it's the most wretched of deaths. Uh, Roman um, spokesman Cicero said that Greeks and Romans should never even talk about crucifixion. Uh, Hitler actually would sometimes crucify those who committed treason on Germany. In the Sudan, they even crucify people today to be one of the most horrific deaths throughout history. Death by crucifixion was reserved to display the most despicable deaths. It was so bad that they even made a a word to describe crucifixion. The word is actually excruciating. And I think we use that word when we have hangnails or small little pains I have an excruciating pain in my back. What that phrase actually means is from the cross. They had to come up with a word to describe the pain that one actually would go through. For Romans, um, they perfected it. It was made by the Persians, but the Romans perfected it. And it was made in such a way that it would draw out pain as long as possible. And it was done not to Roman citizens, typically, unless they had committed treason or ultimate betrayal on Rome. But they would do this to their least... their their least favorite enemies. And so you have this painful death that was done publicly in the most public place. And so if you were to do it today, it would be in a Target parking lot to put someone on display where anyone can walk by and anyone can mock and anyone can ridicule the person hanging on a cross. And the one would be sat and stripped down of all of his or her clothes put publicly, you would sit there in agony and pain, sometimes would urinate and defecate on the cross as you're hanging, as long as possible, so you can experience the most pain. And so I just want you to capture this picture. They wouldn't even do this to women in this way, because they would see your face and they struggled with you actually seeing a woman go through that pain. So women were often crucified with their faces toward the cross so that you would not see a woman's face. So they did this to Jesus. They crucified him where everyone could see his face and the agony that he went through. The God of the universe humbled himself, became man, became sin for us, and was crucified in this way. And so as Jesus breathes his last breath, Luke takes us to this moment that to me is divine and spectacular of how this horrific death, where you would, one would say nothing good can come from this, but Luke shows us something intrinsically different. Look in verse 44. It says this. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. When the sunlight failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, saying, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last breath. And when Centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man is innocent. And all the crowds they had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. And all of his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. There's a couple of miraculous things that happened. One is darkness filled the, uh, the land at this moment um, we we know that it says the ninth hour, it happened until the ninth hour, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. That would have been 12 o'clock p.m. to 3 o'clock p.m. And so darkness overtaking this land at this moment, to me, is a miraculous event. Matthew's gospel actually talks about how the earth shakes in this event. And Luke even gives us something really spectacular that takes place in verse 25. He says... And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And I want to tell you what this actually means, because for some of us, we may have just read that and it means nothing. But let me explain to you how significant this is, because when you look at this horrible death and you look at this curtain torn in two, it's going to show you the implications of the cross. In the Old Testament, In Exodus 25, God tells Moses to build a sanctuary that he might dwell among his people. In Exodus 29, you see Moses, he builds a tent for God's presence to reside. And later you see the the Old Testament language change from tent to temple or to tabernacle. And so what you have in the Old Testament is a, a system, a sacrificial system that has been set up you have a temple where people would come, the people of Israel would come and they would give their sacrifices, they would give their offerings and in this temple was a massive veil, a massive curtain that would separate even the, great, the highest of priests could never cross this curtain. This curtain was said to be somewhat close to four feet thick. And if one would cross it and go past it, he would be struck dead because God does not allow sin into the holy place. And Scripture tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So even the high priest is a sinner. And he's not allowed in this place because the holiest of holies resided. God's presence resided in this place. And so what would take place is every single year, there was something called Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, which means God, for one day, would allow a priest, the high priest, to come behind this thick curtain and give an offering to God for the sins of the people. It would take two goats. One would have all of the sins of Israel placed on this goat, And the blood would be shed from this goat into this holy place. And then you would have another goat that they would place all the sins on this goat and they would send him out. They would expiate him from the camp and there would be no longer. God would forgive their sins and forget their sins. And so you have this picture of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And one day a year, one day a year, the high priest was allowed Behind this veil, And what Luke does in just a few words tells us that when Jesus Christ hung on a cross and moments before he breathed his last breath, the veil, the curtain tore from top to bottom. No man could ever have done this on his own. No man could ever have torn this veil. He would have been struck dead. And Jesus, on the cross, his death was sufficient to tear this veil, and so no longer do we need a day of atonement. Christ is our atonement. Christ's death was enough. The writer of Hebrews says it very well. If you're a person who writes in your Bible, you want to write these verses down near Luke 23. because It's going to help you get this picture. Let me just stay with me on these verses because they're incredible truths of what actually takes place here. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, it says this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent... Not made with hands, that is, not of his, this creation. He entered once for all. Listen to this. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of the goats or the calves, but by, by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of the goats and of the bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons and the ashes of a heifer sanctify For the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through his eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, perfect sacrifice, without blemish to God, purifying our uh, conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, it says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, it says that we have confidence, sinners... Have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And that since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and a full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our blood washed With pure water. I want to show you those verses because here's what he's saying. You have in this temple the most holy place. No one is ever allowed into the holy place because of our sin. One time a year, the high priest can do that, and that is it. But when the curtain tore from top to bottom, what he's saying is this We have access to relationship with the Father, because of Jesus' blood that was spilt on our behalf. No more do we need to make sacrifices to God and go through this ritual and go through this yearly practice daily. We can come to the Father because of what Jesus Christ has done. We can do this with confidence, not because of things that we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. In our place. And so if you look at the story, you may respond as one criminal who's hanging on the cross next to Jesus. God, just rescue me from this evil world. God, get me through this moment of suffering in my life. God, get me through this economic decline. God, get me out of this situation. If you're really God, do that. We may try to put him to the test, but if we look at like the other criminal does, as he turns to Jesus and says, I am guilty of all the charges that are brought before me. You are innocent. You are innocent and holy king that you would give your life for us, and then we respond in that way. So you may be one of the two criminals that are here this morning. We're all criminals, by the way. We're all sinful and we need a holy savior that we cry out to like the second criminal who said, I'm guilty. God, would you save my soul? So if you've never responded to the gospel, this is the gospel. If you don't know Christ, this, this is Christ of what he paid for and what he died for. Your sins in your place. If you're a believer, this morning my prayer is this that you would be encouraged by the curtain being torn from top to bottom. It means that you don't have to keep dying over and over again. It means that you don't have to live in a world of false guilt and trying to work your salvation. It means that you don't have to go to a priest to be forgiven of your sins because you have a great and wonderful high priest who is faithful and just to forgive you for all sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It means that if you are struggling with your prayer life, you don't have to go through rituals and prayer beads. That means you come to... Jesus you pray in Jesus name and you can you don't have to use rich and spiritual language to pray you can actually come directly to the father through Jesus it means if you have a sin issue in your heart that you're constantly struggling with, you don't have to react as these people did when they saw Jesus. They, they beat their breasts and they just didn't know what to do. Uh, you actually know what to do. You can consistently go to Christ and ask for forgiveness. And because of that, Connection between the Father and what Jesus has done, that the veil has been torn from top to bottom, you have confidence knowing that what Christ has done is enough. If you're having problems with forgiveness, you have confidence to go to the Father because of what Jesus has done. And so what I want you to see this morning, whether you were a believer or an unbeliever, I believe there's no unbelievers here that you would see that the cross of Christ is enough for your joy, for your satisfaction, for everything in this world that would bring you hope is Christ. And there's no hope outside of Jesus because the veil has been torn from top to bottom. And so my prayer is this. I don't have tons of application points. By the way, there's no application points That sit under this point, the cross of Christ is enough. So, my question for you this morning is this is the cross of Christ enough for you? Let us dwell on that this morning as we respond to the gospel. Let's pray.